the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today, uh, August being the two-year anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, we're going to be talking uh, about this, and we're going to be going behind Katrina's closed doors with the doctor at the center of the storm, Dr. Richard Dykeman. Today, there are still many secrets left. Uh, we still don't really know what's going on in uh, at the center of the storm. And at least um, through Dr. Dykeman's eyes, who has just written a book called Code Blue, a Katrina Physician's Memoir, um, we can get a real up-close-and-personal look because there's always that sense of dissatisfaction looking at the news. I mean, <laughs> you know, the news just shows the sensational pictures of, um, of what it's like, but not really what it's like for the people and certainly not what it's like for the doctors who have, were in charge of trying to keep people safe and healthy under these um, incredibly difficult circumstances. So welcome to the show, Dr. Dykeman. Thank you, Dr. Carroll. Thank you for having me on. Um, now, you were, at the time, the chief of medicine at New Orleans Baptist Memorial Hospital, and you're currently a physician and clinical researcher at Oxner Medical Center, also in New Orleans. And before the show, I was asking you, uh, I, I didn't want to embarrass you on the air in case there was some other reason, but I was asking you why you're at a different hospital, and you said... Yeah, well, the, the original hospital that I worked at has closed down because of the flood and hasn't been able to reopen. It just sustained too much damage uh, and coincidentally enough, the the hospital that I moved to just recently bought the old hospital and uh, does have plans to redevelop it. Uh, right now, the, the original hospital, Baptist Hospital, is doing business as a as an ambulatory care facility, and it does have a few inpatient beds where they can take care of surgical patients, you know, for short periods of time and that type of thing, but... It had been a very large tertiary care facility, you know, one of the three or four biggest and best hospitals in the city prior to the storm. Well, why don't we start with, uh, let's go back to the beginning, and actually even before the beginning of Hurricane Katrina, just if you could, um, did, were you born, if you could just give us a, a short bio of who you were before Hurricane Katrina. Okay, sure. Um I was born in New Orleans, actually, oh. and um, did my undergraduate training at Tulane and went to medical school at Tulane, uh, left to do my residency in internal medicine at Chapel Hill, North Carolina at UNC, uh, and then moved back to New Orleans in 1986 and had been practicing at this hospital, actually, uh, until then. And our group was 
you know, a very well-respected group that worked at that hospital. It was a group of six internists, and uh, we had been working there, you know, for the, that entire time. Um, I'd also done some clinical research and, and some other things. I was on the faculty at Tulane as a clinical professor as well. Um, and so that's a little bit about okay. my background before the storm. So you really, um, so this this hurricane really uh, had an even greater impact on you because that's where you were born. I mean, it really that's that's your city. Well, why don't you tell us about when when you first heard about the hurricane approaching and and what what happened from the beginning? Sure. Uh, my oldest daughter was just getting ready to go to college. In fact, we were bringing her to Chapel Hill, where I had done my training uh, at UNC. And we got here, and we're you know getting her in the dorm and stuff. And we started hearing these reports that there was a that there was a hurricane named Katrina coming, and you know it looked like it might be coming toward the Gulf Coast somewhere around maybe Florida or Alabama. And you know, as as sort of the, the hours went by, it looked more and more like it might be coming to New Orleans. So we cut our trip short and bring in my daughter to school, and just drove straight back from Chapel Hill back to New Orleans. Our other two daughters were still in New Orleans, and uh, our plan was to come back, get our two daughters, and then just all of us evacuate to the hospital. To your hospital? To our hospital. It would have been the first time that we would have ever evacuated for a storm. Typically, uh, where we live is a very safe area. It's, you know, a relatively high area for New Orleans. It had never flooded before, and... uh, the home is a is a you know really solid home, and we had never felt the need to evacuate. But we were worried about this one and wanted to go someplace where we thought we would be safe. You know, obviously it didn't turn out that way. But um, we got back Saturday night, relatively late, and early the next morning woke up. You know, packed a bag with some stuff to bring to the hospital with the idea that we'd need to stay there for maybe a day or two until the hurricane passed. And then we'd come back home. Uh, we sort of secured all the belongings in the yard and the home. And, you know, all the people in the New Orleans area and the Gulf Coast area are sort of familiar with the usual hurricane drill. Uh, things like filling up your bathtub with water, making you sure you have canned goods, uh, getting gasoline, um, making sure you have some cash, that type of thing. So we were doing all those things. And then got our pets loaded up and went on over to the hospital. Hmm, okay. <laughs> and how old are your other two daughters? My, my other two daughters uh, are well, currently 16 and 18. Okay. All right, so then what happened? Well, we get to the hospital, and it's very apparent that, uh, you know, this is not business as usual at all. Uh, there are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars jamming in the parking lot from people in the neighborhood uh, trying to evacuate and find some sort of shelter. Um, I get into the hospital, and there are, there are over 2,000 people in the hospital already, uh, people from the community, uh, patients, patients' families, staff, staff's families. And in the past, uh, the hospital... You know, it's a huge place with a number of big, big buildings. 
Uh, and it's, it has served as a shelter and a refuge for people. And, you know, the hospital sort of felt it was its duty to, you know, help those in the community in the city and in times of disasters. And so it certainly ended up taking on a lot more people than uh, it had the resources to care for for an extended period of time, like, mm-hmm. is what ended up happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were lots and lots of pets that people had evacuated with, um, you know, lots of dogs and cats and, you know, kids. And and that was all fine at first. You know, people all, you know, the first day as the hurricane approached, uh, you know, people were just all camping out in the hallways and corridors and stairwells and parking lots and things like that. Uh, but as the days went by, you know, con- and conditions got worse and worse and worse, uh, things became very, very serious then. Well, um, what, um, yes, well, go, go on. Okay. I, I mean, how, uh, how many days did you look, wind up, how many days were there that you wound up um, being kind of stuck the, in the hospital? I ended up leaving Thursday night. But let me take you through the yes. storm hitting. Yeah. Okay, so we're we're at Sunday here. Uh, and by about Sunday evening, uh, the winds start really, really picking up. I mean, you could feel the winds picking up Sunday afternoon. And by Sunday evening, the winds were really, really high, and the power goes out. But the hospital has generators, and so the generators kick on. And those those generators provide enough electricity to supply emergency power, which is about a third of the power. So about a third of the, of the lights are on, uh, about a third of the outlets are on, and that's, you know, enough to light the place and stuff. Uh, and the water starts to come up in the streets, uh, and this is mainly rainwater from the storm. And by Monday around noon or so, the storm has passed, and the water begins to actually recede in the streets. And by Monday afternoon, there aren't, there's no more water left in the streets. The streets are all dry. But, of course, there's telephone poles down. Trees are down all over the place. Uh, it, the roads are, are basically impassable from all the damage from, from just the winds. Uh, we're still on, on generator power, and, and the feeling is we really dodged a bullet. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of windows are broken out in the hospital, and we've now moved patients from these rooms where there were windows mm. because there's flying glass in those windows. So we moved all those patients into the hallways, too. Mm. So now there's a lot of people in hallways all over the place and beds and things like that and, you know, ventilator, you know, in the intensive care units, we have ventilators and all kinds of life support equipment going on that is being powered by generator power. Uh, we, we have a big neonatal unit there, and, you know, we're taking care of all these premature infants in, in bassinets mm. bas- and things. Uh, with generator power. Uh, and me, for me personally uh, and my family, you know, we're feeling like, well, you know, we, we made it through this and we're going to be okay. Uh, and we actually try to go to our home to see what happened to our home. And we try to drive out Tuesday, I mean, Monday evening, but we're unable to get there because there's just too many trees down and telephone poles and stuff. So we turn around thinking, well, you know, They'll be able to clean up these streets, no problem, overnight. You know, in, in New Orleans, we have Mardi Gras, and they clean the streets up right after these Mardi Gras parades mm-hmm. in five minutes. And mm-hmm. so we're all thinking, this is going to be no problem at all, and we'll be home by tomorrow. 
But Tuesday morning when we try to drive home, we find that there's all kinds of little streams and rivers that have that have crept up uh, crossing the different streets and stuff that uh, just are all over the city. And we start to hear reports over the radio that the levees had broken and that the city was starting to flood and fill up with water. And and this is the thing that really wiped out the whole city, Dr. Carroll. Um, you know, the natural disaster was not nearly as serious as the, the levees breaking. Mm. And that was the man-made part of the disaster that just totally wiped out the whole city uh, was, this, was the flood from the levees breaking. Yeah, I definitely want to emphasize that point, that the levees were designed to hold water 14 feet high, and they actually broke when the water was only 10 feet high. Huh. And just recently... A uh, geotechnical analysis was performed by the Corps of Engineers, you know, who who designed and built the levees, uh, and found that it's only safe at six feet high. So they're so, finding this out now. <laughs> yeah, they're finding that out now. Hmm. All right. Well, we do need to take a break. That that is really uh, <laughs> that that does make it all the more tragic that it wasn't nature as much as it was. Well, what, greed or human error? Or, well, we'll get back and we'll find out more about that. Okay. My guest today is Dr. Richard Dykeman. He is the author of Code Blue, a Katrina physician's memoir. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. The Kerry Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Kerry Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Kerry Douglas Show. Join Kerry each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Kerry Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas broadcasts each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, your premier source for faith based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST, 4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. 
VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're having an anniversary show for Hurricane Katrina. It's been two years. My guest is Dr. Richard Dykeman. He was the chief of medicine at New Orleans Baptist Memorial Hospital during Hurricane Katrina, and we're getting an inside look. So we've left at a cliffhanger here. <laughs> the levees have just broken. Yeah, the levees just broke, and uh, the city's starting to fill up with water. And the authorities actually knew about the levees breaking shortly after they broke on, on Monday, early, early Monday morning, uh, but really didn't warn people about this. And that's one of the other things uh, you know, I'm really upset about. A, a lot of lives could have been saved, I think, if people had been warned over the radios early on that the levees had broken and, uh, and, and notified them over the radio which were the safe routes out of the city. And why didn't that happen? Well, I, I, I don't know the reason. There, there are lots of really unanswered questions and you know, certainly that that is one of the big ones I have in my mind. Hmm. Um, but you know, by the time people did find out that the levees had broken the, and the water was filling up the city, it was too late for many people, uh, and it was almost too late for my own family. Uh, we decided at that point that it would probably be safer for my family, my wife and two daughters, to to evacuate, and I had to decide whether or not I was going to go with them. Or, or or stay at the hospital, and that was a really really tough tough decision to end up making. Mm-hmm. I ended up deciding to stay at the hospital, and my wife and two daughters uh, left to try to make their way to a town about 200 miles away, where they would be able to stay with some friends of ours. Uh, but at that point, there was no there was no clear way of how to get out of the city, and the car that they were leaving in only had about half a tank of gas, and there was no mm. place you could get any gas, and all the cell phones were out. There was no way I could communicate with them, mm. or, or they could communicate with me if they ran into trouble. And, you know, the, the the only experience we had had that morning of trying to get around town was a complete failure because the water was coming up, and we couldn't actually even drive to our house, much less to get to someplace 200 miles away. So... That was a that was a very nerve wracking decision, uh, and they they ended up leaving and getting to safety. But as of the last time I saw them Tuesday morning, until I talked to them late Thursday night, you know I had no idea if they had made it out yeah. alive or not. And so I, that was really really one of the things that upset me a lot during the whole ordeal. And and you were trying to heroically help patients, right? Okay. So I go back to the hospital, and uh, we make the decision to evacuate the hospital, which is the first time in, in history that this hospital has ever been evacuated or even even conceived of the notion of evacuating the hospital. Um, now, that was a lot easier to decide than to actually carry out. Okay. But this time, the water is starting to come up, and uh, one National Guard truck makes it to the hospital through the water and takes out maybe about six or seven or eight people, uh, and that was basically it as far as any kind of land route in. The water starts coming up so fast, there's no way any other 
any other craft other than a boat or an aircraft is going to get there. Uh, and the water eventually gets up to be about eight feet. But we begin to triage the patients to evacuate our sickest ones first, and we triage them such that all the intensive care unit patients who are on ventilators were high priority, all the neonates in the neonatal intensive care unit were high priority, and all the all the OB patients, all the pregnant women were high priority. And we had about 25 patients that fit into one of those three categories. And we there was a private helicopter ambulance service, Acadian Air Ambulance, that came into our came up to our helipad, which hadn't been used for about 15 years. We weren't even sure it was still stable. Hmm. Uh, and got those people out slowly but surely over the course of about 12 hours. Uh, and where and, did they bring them? Well, they had to bring them to places all over the state. Uh, they would fly them to Baton Rouge, which is about about 75 miles away. Some had to fly all the way to Lafayette, which is a couple of hundred miles away. Some had to go to uh, Thibodeau, which is about maybe 60 miles away. We had one patient who was a bone marrow transplant patient who had to go to the closest bone marrow transplant place, which was Houston. And that was, you know, that was a big ordeal, evacuating that person. Um, but we were able to eventually get them out. And, you know, this is, it, it's, it's very difficult because by this time, by Tuesday night, we had lost even the generator. Uh, and we had no way, there was no elevators at all working. The, the hospital was completely black inside the hallways. So everybody had to be carried up in the stair, in these dark stairwells. Um, you know, and, and when it's just, when it's dark and hot, you know, of course all the air conditioning had gone up mm-hmm. right away. Even the generators didn't supply air conditioning. And temperatures in the hospital eventually soared over 100 degrees. Huh. So just the heat and the and the dehydration was really affecting lots of people, not just patients, but uh, the, the 2,000 people in the hospital were beginning to get sick, too. Yeah. Uh, so by Tuesday night, we had gotten out our really, really sickest patients, and the authorities had been talking to us from, from some type of satellite phone that one of the administrators had that would work intermittently uh, and let us know that you know they're, they're coming for you tomorrow morning. You know, we're going to evacuate the entire hospital tomorrow morning, which would be Wednesday morning. So, you know, have all the patients ready and waiting, um, and we'll be there. And so we got, you know, we, we, we triaged the rest of the people. Um, and we had the six people all ready to go, uh, both, you know, waiting for helicopters up on the helipad, as well as down by the emergency room loading ramp. Uh, and those people would be evacuated by boat down by the emergency mm. room. Uh, but the rescuers never came. Uh, they were, you know, the, the helicopter rescuers were really, really stretched thin in picking people off roofs all over the city. Uh, and, in fact, in, in one just really heartbreaking situation, late Wednesday afternoon, one of the Coast Guard helicopters came and landed on the helipad, and I was thinking, you know, thank God we can finally get some of our dialysis patients up because we still have dialysis patients, and without dialysis, you know, they would, they would die. They were going to die soon. So we were still trying to urgently evacuate them out. But this one Coast Guard helicopter had 
four or five people in his hold who they had just picked off of off roofs, hmm. and you know that they were just all worn out. Their faces were all dragging and sunburnt. They had been on roofs for probably two days now. You know, they'd probably seen some of their relatives die up on those roofs in the heat uh, with no water or anything. And the Coast Guard pilot asked me, look, can we drop these people off? And I said, <laughs> you know, we, we're trying to evacuate this place. We have people dying in here right now, and we, we can't accept them. And so we kind of negotiated a little bit. I said, look, I'll take them if, if you take my dialysis patients hmm. for me and, and fly them off to one of the hospitals to Thibodeau. And, you know, he talked to his commander. He says, no, we, we're not going to be able to do it. Uh, so they took off with, you know, their four people, and, and I ended up keeping my dialysis people. But we did end up getting those dialysis patients out of there. So I was, I was really glad about that. But it was those kinds of decisions that were just so hard to make. Yes, know? like whose life is more important than, than someone else's. Mm-hmm. And were people dying in the hospital? People were definitely dying in the hospital. Uh, and as the days went by, more and more people died. They were just getting, you know, way overheated. We'd be putting IVs in people as we could uh, to prevent dehydration. I mean, we were probably running out of IV bags and running and water and food. And we were, uh, you know, Dan. The uh, I, I personally lost ten pounds during the course of the ordeal, <laughs> just from from lack of enough food to eat. Uh, we were serving meals in small little twelve ounce styrofoam cups, you know, with like a scoop of grits. Uh, you know, some type of, you know, cold cut and like a piece of bread or something uh, was all we could cook. Uh, and that was that was the first day. After that, we couldn't even cook anything. We just had to serve cold stuff, of course. Um, but the conditions gradually got more and more dire. Uh, and by Wednesday night, things had really gotten bad. The whole time, you know, looting was going on around the hospital. And I was really concerned that, uh, a gang would would come up in a boat to the hospital and basically charge the hospital and try to get drugs or try mm-hmm. to shake down people in the hospital. Uh, panic was starting to break out inside the hospital, and I was also worried that maybe a mob from inside the hospital would would start getting really really violent. Um, you know, to sort of stem a lot of the people's panic, uh, we would we would you know, go around and talk to them and, and give them what information we had. But, of course, most of the information we had wasn't very good news. Mm-hmm. But at least just giving people information made, I think, some gave them some consolation anyway. Right. Um, but Wednesday night we had even more people die. Um, and then by Thursday, you know, and the whole time the authorities are saying, okay, well, we're going to be coming to get you, and, and they don't. Um, they They did muster sort of a half-hearted rescue effort by boat on Wednesday uh, and about four to five hundred people were evacuated Wednesday by boat mm. but we like still the, had over again about, the sickest did you send the sickest people out well by no well because the authorities wouldn't let us send the patients out they only would let ambulatory people go out uh. because where they, they were being evacuated to uh, basically uh, an area where you had to be able to walk mm. and, and kind of fend for yourself. Uh, they had mm. they were evacuated either to the convention center, which was kind of a horror show there, or to a place way out on an interstate where you'd just be exposed to the elements. Uh-huh. 
All right. Well, we do need to uh, stop again to take a break. This is a mesmerizing story. Uh, we're talking today with Dr. Richard Dykeman. He's the author of Code Blue, a Katrina physician's memoir. We need to take another break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're honoring Hurricane Katrina and its victims on the second anniversary. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Ever wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood jet set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with president of Traveris, David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors, sports celebrities, and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend. On Travera Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa also offer up feature vacations each week and last-minute deals for your next getaway. Find out what's new and exciting in the travel industry, as well as how to raise money for your nonprofit organizations while enjoying a wonderful vacation. Travera Celebrity Travel Talk with David Manning and Lisa O'Hurley broadcasts each Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Travera Celebrity Travel Talk, your inside look into celebrities and travel. The Kerry Douglas Show, with the CEO of Worldwide Music Incorporated and the founder and publisher of Gospel Truth Magazine, Kerry Douglas. By tuning in weekly, you will gain insight, tips, and tools to help get your career started. From how to market yourself to distribution of your product, learn the power of faith-based marketing and much more on The Kerry Douglas Show. Join Kerry each week with guests from the gospel music industry, entrepreneurs, speakers, and authors as they discuss faith-based news, events, and trends. The Kerry Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas broadcasts each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America channel. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, your premier source for faith based entertainment, news, events, and trends. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're going behind Katrina's closed doors with the doctor at the center of the storm, Dr. Richard Dykeman. And uh, this story, even though we think we knew what went on, <laughs> this story is riveting, just hearing it from your um, first-hand account. So why don't you continue? Okay. Um, so Wednesday night, what was happening was, you know, it was just really, really hot, and people were really beginning to get really panicky because it, it was clear that if this went on much longer, more than another couple of days, uh, people weren't going to have enough water or food. And we actually had to post an armed guard next to the water water uh, mm. supply uh, for fear that people were going to start overtaking the water supply. Uh, and the next morning, I'll never forget, uh, just sort of early morning, near daybreak, uh, one of the leaders 
uh, of the of the crisis at the hospital, got the report that the authorities weren't coming to evacuate us. And you know, she told us they told you know she she told the group that they're not going to come, and they told us to just figure it out on our own. Mm-hmm. And my first thought was, God, you know, how could they leave? You know, fifteen hundred people stranded here at a hospital with all these sick people too. But my second thought was, you know, finally we know we can't rely on them, and we're going to be able to figure this out on our own. And so what we ended up doing was we went around the we went around the neighborhood and commandeered boats. Um, and in fact, one of the people who really helped us out was a guy from Texas who came over with his son uh, in just a small little sixteen foot flat bottom boat. And he had told us that the police had prevented him from coming in uh, and putting his boat in the water, saying that, you know, the government had taken over the whole area and he wasn't allowed to come in. And, you know, he was thinking, I'm, I haven't come in all the way from Texas not to come help, and he snuck uh-huh. in someplace else. But it it just it was appalling to me that they would not let people come in and rescue us. Yeah. Uh, but he helped us because we used his boat to go around the neighborhoods to get other boats, and, and we devised an evacuation plan where we scouted out where the high ground was uh, and then start to evacuate all the patients and then family and then uh, other staff and, and evacuees to the high ground there. And people were people were panicky and and. You know, in the lines that we had set up to board these boats, there was a lot of jostling for position, and it was hard to keep security really because uh, we all of our part of our security detachment had actually abandoned the place. Hmm. All but one of the policemen had abandoned. Uh, the National Guard, who had initially been at the hospital early on, they had abandoned the facility, and we actually ended up having to give guns out to just the maintenance workers ah. to try to get to try to. Uh, to provide security. I mean, to to give you an idea of how concerned and worried people were, the pathologist started handing out scalpels that he does autopsies with to the people uh, to to protect themselves in case some armed gang came and invaded oh, wow. the hospital. Wow! So that that's how how bad the conditions had gotten. And you know, by this time, it's about a hundred degrees in the hospital. Nobody's been able to. You know, none of the toilets are working because there's no running water. There's not been any running water for four days now. So there's stool and urine all over the place. There's dogs and cats wandering around, mm-hmm. and they're all their excrement is all over. It's it's the most horrible situation you could imagine. Um, it it was just awful. But we do we start evacuating all these people um, by our own devices. And we also start getting help from the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard comes and starts doing more airlifts, and we're able to get more people out by helicopter as well. But we end up evacuating probably about 1,200 people by the boats that we uh, got, and we brought them to this this high ground area where people with trucks and and cars put them in their trucks and cars and evacuated them to another staging area out on an interstate uh, where they eventually were taken by bus to other places. Uh, And then the patients who we evacuated to that high ground area were brought away by an ambulance company that that really courageously showed up to start helping. So that was a big, big help there. 
I I personally ended up evacuating at, with, with the last patients, and it was Thursday evening, and I was one of the last helicopters to leave. Um, it, it was dark by the time I finally got out and got to a small helipad at a hospital about 40 miles away uh, and was able to use a satellite phone to contact my wife and tell her that I was safe and learn for the first time that she was safe too. Uh, I was just so glad to hear that. I was I was just so upset the whole time. And I ended up uh, getting a bus to Dallas that stopped in Baton Rouge and I got off at Baton Rouge and my wife came and picked me up and brought me to, to Lafayette where, where she was safe. Boy, <laughs> and so did you, you know, there was that whole controversy about a doctor who, um, and some nurses, I believe, who were alleged to have given uh, medication to, to for patients who they thought weren't going to pull through uh, to sort of help them die. What, did you have anything like that in your hospital? And what, um, I mean, what about the patients who were there? Obviously, you said there were people who died. I presume were most of them patients or most of them families members? Or No, they were patients. Uh, the, and, and that episode happened at, at this hospital. Oh, it was your hospital. Yeah, that huh. was at this hospital at a, at really a hospital within a hospital. Uh, Life Care Hospital was a long-term care hospital that rented space from our hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those allegations were about some patients that had been up, up in that unit. Um, I wasn't, you know, I certainly wasn't aware of anything like that happening when I was there, and I was as surprised as anybody else when I heard about that on the news uh, you know, several weeks later, and uh, you know, as you had mentioned at the beginning of the of the show, uh, part of the reason I wrote the book was, you know, just sort of the the, the stories coming out of what happened at at Baptist Hospital really bore no relationship to what what I'd experienced and what I'd witnessed there, and I'd wanted to you know tell the story of what I'd witnessed there. Mm-hmm. But the to just give you the follow-up on what has happened with uh, the doctor and the two nurses, uh, they had been, you know, investigated first by the state attorney general, uh, and then he turned the case over to the local district attorney who convened a grand jury to also investigate it, uh, and the grand jury met, and, it, you know, she, she, the, all three of those women were investigated for almost two years now, and the grand jury recently found... Uh, no bill of indictment and uh, exonerated those those women uh, and and actually the judge felt that the record should be expunged too and and so uh, no charges are pending against them now there are lots of suits still pending civil suits uh, not just against them but against a number of physicians in all kind of, all of the hospitals basically because uh, patients died at all the hospitals in New Orleans. Um, and there, you know, I think it's really awful. You know, all these physicians were and, and staff and uh, nurses were working trying to save lives, and you know, there's there's over 200 legal actions against against them for staying behind to, wow. to do the best that they could. 
Boy, that that seems like misplaced anger. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when when you think about all the mistakes that the government made um, from not warning people early enough that the levee had broken to, um, you know, not having a better rescue effort and on and on, the doctors, you know, are the heroes comparatively. Well, I certainly agree with your sentiments about that, Dr. Carroll, no question. I mean, I was going to ask you, in in the hospital, not only was there panic, I guess, but also a lot of anger uh, at the circumstances. I mean, not necessarily at the doctors, but just at the circumstances. Oh, yeah, people are just incredibly, incredibly angry, and there's a lot of that anger that's still in the community today. Um, you know, just an anger at the failure of leadership at, at all levels of government, both local, state, and federal, uh, particularly in anger at the Corps of Engineers for, you know, building a levy, a levy system that, that failed like that. Um, no one anticipated the levies failing in the way they did, and, uh, you know, it's just uh, the whole thing is so frustrating. Well, what, are, are there lawsuits against um, that company, I would imagine, as well? Yeah, I, I'm not real sure of all the different lawsuits, Uh I'm pretty sure there's a lawsuit against the company that ran that hospital and probably the the, the company that ran uh, Baptist Hospital as well. <laughs> no, but I meant against the company <coughs> that made the levies. Oh well, that was the Corps of Engineers. Yes. Now there were there were I, I don't know if there are lawsuits. Di- well, I know there are lawsuits directed at the Corps of Engineers actually. Uh, but the government right now is claiming immunity mm. <laughs> because of the you know, the federal immunity statutes. And and what is the what are the main what's the main gist of the lawsuits that's against the doctors? Like what are the doctors supposed to have done better? Uh, you know, just things like general you know failure to evacuate. Uh, you know. You, Generally, you know, general negligence, basically. Uh, but, you know, the doctors were doing everything they possibly could under phenomenally primitive circumstances. Yes. Um, you know, and I imagine that it probably was more of a, um, what's the word, a compassionate thing to do when, if there were circumstances where it didn't seem like someone was going to be rescued and they were going to die, I, I don't know that um, someone should be faulted for having them do that, allowing them to do that with more dignity if the situation was hopeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, a, a lot of people share that sentiment, too. Well, we need to take another break. It really, um, really must have been. It's, it's hard to imagine what it was like. It's hard to, even with you describing it, it just, it just, uh, just seems like something that's um, that we only see in movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, we need to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Dr. Richard Dykeman. We've been talking about Hurricane Katrina, and we will continue when we come back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Whether by choice or by circumstance, the statistics of the effects of missing fathers and the impact on our children, our neighborhoods, and our communities is staggering. How can we interrupt this pattern of violence, gang activity, drug use, and sexual activity among our fatherless children? On Changing a Generation, with author, inspirational speaker, life coach, and host, Terrence Wilson, the focus is on elevating the mindset of this current generation by unveiling viewpoints that inspire people to reach for their dreams. Terrence and his guests reveal how building family relationships, becoming an entrepreneur, and living a Christian life develops future leaders in the next generation of children. Changing a Generation with Terrence Wilson broadcasts each Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Changing a Generation, bringing a message of deliverance to the fatherless on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer, and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guest, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're going behind Katrina's closed doors today with Dr. Richard Dykeman. Uh, he took us through the the horror of the experience and and uh, some of the some of the greatest misfortunes being uh, human error rather than natural disaster error, um, and and off the air we were, I was asking him about how many people died from his hospital and you said about there there's varying estimates but somewhere between 34 and 45 and approximately 2,000 people in all of New Orleans. Um, what what now two years later? What is the what are things like? What what has been the psychological impact, the physical impact? Uh, that and you know I'm glad you bring that up because those are some of the issues that I really talk about a lot uh, in the different talks that I give now about the whole event. Um, there's been a researcher from Harvard, Dr. Kessler, who's come done a study of a cohort of 3,000 Katrina survivors. Uh, and he's finding in his first uh, report in August of 2006 that there's about a 40% incidence of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, among this group of 3,000 people in New Orleans. And that that corresponds pretty well to what I see in my own practice right now. I still practice internal medicine. And, you know, I see people with lots of depression, uh, lots of PTSD. Um 
and it's characterized by things like irritability, nightmares, uh, skittishness, a lot of anxiety, uh, flying off the handle easily, um, a little bit of a sense of hopelessness. Um, I think things are, are steadily getting better, and one of the things he noticed in, in some of his research, too, was a sense of rebirth, too, in that people are kind of looking back and, and reviewing what's really important in their lives uh, and reconnecting with family, uh, with church, maybe, uh, with sort of those institutions in the city that they've always cherished. And and that's really important for for our community as well as, I think, for any community that's had such an awful tragedy happen to to do is to just to reconnect with those things that make that place special. Um, and, and New Orleans really is a unique place. I mean, there's just really not many places like it in the country. Uh, and there's a there's a real unique just quirkiness to it, and people both love it and hate it at the same time. But, I mean, for me, uh, reconnecting with the city means, you know, enjoying some of some of its good food and music and enjoying my friends that are there and things. Um, I think it's important for for people to realize that, you know, the people in New Orleans are coming back despite really poor leadership. Uh, they're, they're rebuilding on their own. And, and, you know, despite really not a lot of help from the government or insurance companies or anything, uh, they're just they're coming back, and they just don't care. They're coming back and and rebuilding with the, with whatever resources that they have. Hmm. I mean, individually, yeah, person just, by person. Yeah, just individually, and you'll see that in the various neighborhoods that were really really damaged. Uh, you know, in one block there'll be you know just maybe two or three houses that people have decided that they're coming back and rebuilding no matter what happens, and maybe the next block. You know, ninety percent of the people will come back. Uh-huh. Uh huh. But you know, some—I'd say many of the neighborhoods, there is rebuilding activity going on there. Uh, in some of the really, really hard-hit neighborhoods, there's still not a lot of rebuilding going on. And um, what about this current uh, brouhaha about people complaining that they're getting sick in the FEMA trailers? Yeah, there's. Uh, they've done some studies on the formaldehyde in these FEMA trailers, and it turns out to be apparently a toxic, a toxic level of formaldehyde. Uh, and there have been a number of illnesses in children, particularly due to exposure to the formaldehyde. I, I personally haven't treated any of of those people, but uh, they're they're trying to do some stuff to remedy the situation, put them in. in a, Put those people in other types of uh, shelters and stuff. And what's the lesson or lessons that you would want people to get from your experience? Well, I think there's several several important lessons. One would be the notion of, of being self reliant. Um, you know, it's it's really important in such a disaster situation to be able to take care of yourself, uh, to not rely on on somebody come and help you, even if they say they will, particularly if it's a government authority. Um, you know, the, the best thing to do is to just remove yourself from the situation as quickly as possible. And certainly in New Orleans, people are going to evacuate right away because they don't, they're not only scared of the hurricane potentially, but even more scared of the decisions that, that authorities might make. Uh, you know, in our situation, some of the, 
what I describe as counterintuitive decisions were things like preventing rescuers from coming to, to, to rescue us. You know, these are just people from other citizens that they prevented from coming in to rescue us. Uh, closing down our own rescue operations at 5 o'clock, uh, closing down the airspace, which prevented other helicopters from coming in to rescue us, hmm. um, closing down the Mississippi River Bridge, so people were even trying to walk to safety, couldn't even walk and hmm. escape. So you, you just cannot predict uh, some of these counterintuitive decisions that the authorities are going to make, and, and the best thing to do would be to just leave. Uh, the other thing was sort of the changes that happen in a community in such a situation. I mean, complete anarchy reigns when things like this happen. And it's it's complete lawlessness, basically. And you just don't want to even expose yourself to that sort of situation. So that would be one of the really important lessons, too. Um, for, for, for hospitals, the lesson that was learned was you really want to limit your exposure to this type of thing. And um, clearly it's not a good idea for a hospital to serve as a shelter for the community uh, in such a situation, you want to try to get most of your patients out of the hospital right away and certainly don't let other people from the community come in and drain the resources that you already mm-hmm. are already in short supply. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now the hospitals just keep a very skeleton, uh, their plan is to just keep a very skeleton sh- uh, shift of people on uh, with only the essential personnel uh, not allowing anybody from the community to take refuge at the hospital, not allowing any of the staff's family to come, not allowing staff's pets to come, uh, stopping elective surgeries a day or two before such an event, um, evacuating out really, really sick people early on. Um, so, you know, hospitals are going to very much limit their exposure to this, to, to, to disasters in the future. You know, I think uh, because of uh, global warming and the increase in natural disasters, the lessons that have been learned from Hurricane Katrina are going to be very important all over the world. Yeah, uh, and and I certainly hope other communities don't have to relive what what we went through here. Uh, you know, and, and you're right. You know, predictions for the future are that uh, sea levels will rise. Storms are going to be more severe, uh, and hopefully some of the lessons learned here won't have to be relearned over and over and over again. And in our community, changes have already been made so that this such a, such an event would would not happen again. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, for actually, they've made rules about hurricanes that are Category 3 and above, the, the hospitals evacuate. Before the hurricane even hits, uh-huh. so there won't even there won't even be any hospitals working, hmm. uh, except for maybe just one or two that will stay working in greater than her, category four, her, category three hurricane. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you um, tell us because it's, the time is almost up? Um, why don't you tell us where? Well, first of all, proceeds from a portion of the proceeds from your book are is going where? Yeah, a portion of the proceeds is going to psychiatric care. Uh, in New Orleans, psychiatric care has been just totally uh, wiped out, basically, in the parish. There's hardly any psychiatric beds, and we've had situations where uh, psychotic patients who 
just don't have any medication or, or being shot in the streets or one one psychotic patient who had to be transferred about 50 or 60 miles to the nearest psychiatric bed ended up jumping out of the back of the ambulance to mm. his death. Mm. Um, so we're doing that. Uh, and the book can be bought at, at bookstores or online at Amazon.com or through through the publisher, Rooftop Publishing. Okay. Well, let me give that information out again. The book, The title of the book is Code Blue, A Katrina Physician's Memoir. My guest today and the author of the book is Dr. Richard Dykman, D-E-I-C-H-M-A-N-N. And um, it's the publisher is Rooftop Publishing, so it's rooftoppublishing.com or the usual Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Dr. Dykman. Obviously, um, obviously you were a hero. It was, her- it was heroic to stay there and... and uh, not knowing even whether your family was going to be going, getting to safety. Well, thank you, Dr. Carroll. So, uh, <laughs> see, it's, it's doctors like you that, that give our profession a good name. <laughs> well, thank you. I wish there was more I could have yes. done, too. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Well, thank you again, and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.